How does the massive amount of internet traffic really get around the world so fast, so reliably, pretty much regardless of what country you're in? Now, the answer isn't satellites, not even close. Under our oceans is an entire ecosystem of undersea fiber optic cable technology crisscrossing thousands of miles back and forth beneath waves moving huge amounts of data from data center to data center, country to country, continent to continent. So how does that work? Who owns those cables? Who repairs them? Who pays for them? And not only that, how do they work and how much data can these submarine cables actually move? With us today is Alan Malden, Research Director at Telegeography and a subject matter expert on the submarine cables making the global internet possible. Also joining again today is Doug Midori, Director of Internet Analysis at Kentic. Now in this episode, we'll be answering those questions and more, and we'll even get into some of the geopolitical nuance of submarine cables. My name is Philip Gervasi, and this is Telemetry Now. Alan, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, just having spoken to Doug quite a bit about what you do, and then, of course, the fact that everybody in our industry seems to be enamored when we look at submarine cable maps. Am I right? It really is cool to talk to you today. Uh, can you give our audience just a little bit of your background, what you do for telegeography, of course, but, but your background overall as, a, as somebody in this field? Uh, thanks, Phil. I'm really happy to be here today and, and uh, talk, talk to you guys. Um, so... I'm a director of research at Tele, Telegeography. We're a, a market research company focused really on the international telecom industry. So we're gathering data on the supply and demand of bandwidth globally on the submarine cables, the terrestrial networks, the IP backbones, data centers, looking at the pricing of various services as well, from, from wavelengths to IP transit to enterprise services as well. So covering a wide range of uh, research areas um, at Tele, Telegeography. Excellent. Thank you, Alan. Uh, really glad to have you on today. And Doug, uh, also great to have you on and returning to us as well. Can you explain to us a little bit about your own professional background, of course, but also what your experience is working with Alan and telegeography uh, from the perspective in the context of internet analysis? Yeah, so I've been doing internet measurement an internet analysis since 2009, back when I was with Renesis. And one of the initial requests I had from uh, my boss at the time was, hey, we get always get asked about submarine cable, this or that. Can you see if you can figure out, uh, can we see submarine cable uh, events, activations, breaks in our measurement data? And uh, so I started to try to uh, get smart on the field and follow like headlines. I was a subscriber to all of uh, at least all the telegraphy free stuff of just like announcements about new cables. And you're like, all right, can I see uh, you know an activation? And that led to uh, once I started to get kind of good at that, then it led to a couple of discoveries. One of those being uh, activation of the Alba One submarine cable to Cuba, uh, which we just uh, celebrated the 10 10 year anniversary last month. Of that activation, and so anyway, so that's, that's why I got into submarine cable stuff. Was uh, it's not that easy to map internet measurement data to submarine cables because they don't always things aren't labeled. You have to kind of make a lot of inferences. Oh, is that and, right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, occasionally there is a submarine cable owned by a. Uh, 
a telecom that does an IP service that is strictly using that uh, that cable. So in the case of like Angola Cables or Seacom or like there's a few that there's a, there's an IP transit service that also goes over the cable, but then there's lots of other stuff that goes over the cable too. That's not you'd have you have to infer. Um, uh, who is using it based on outages? And over the years, with the additional cables, it's become uh, harder. Uh, it, it's better. It's better for all of us. It's better for the internet. Uh, a lot more resilience. But as an analyst um, trying to make these inferences, it becomes more more difficult. But yeah, it's um, it's a bit of an art uh, trying to uh, suss out uh, a submarine cable uh, event in internet measurement data. Yeah, which is why you work with folks like Alan and, and others, I'm sure. Yeah, so then I started getting into this, and then I, I got onto uh, Alan and Tim's radar. I think we crossed paths at a Nanog or uh, a conference, and we started uh, chatting, and then I got invited to one of the submarine cable conferences that Alan uh, is uh, uh, on the program committee for, and he and I would kind of kick off for a couple of years there, uh, the, yeah. the, the two-day conference in Singapore. Uh, it's so fascinating. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. You know, Phil, you were mentioning this is just a, a topic of fascination to people in this field and even not in this field. Even as somebody who's been in it for a while, it's still kind of amazing that this is how it all works. Um, but then getting to, you know, speak at a bunch of these conferences and meet the people who are uh, involved in the industry, it is... Uh, it's an interesting uh, place uh, unto itself, the submarine cable industry. What are some of those conferences? Because obviously I'm very familiar with Nanog and, and some of the other uh, conferences out there, but I'm, I'm really not that familiar with the submarine cable conferences, if that's what they're even called. Alan, do you want to take this? I mean, there's a few. I'd say, you know, one is Submarine Networks World in Singapore each year. There's one in, in London as well in, in, in the spring. But also just the major telecom events have a heavy submarine cable focus, like the PTC conference in Hawaii in January and other of the regional uh, capacity events, whether it's in du- Dubai or R- R- Brazil, often have a heavy focus on subsea cables because cables are just one part of the overall system of how the world connects, right? So there's things that need to be discussed alongside cables, whether it's data centers, terrestrial net- networks, you know, all these things play a, play a role in, in getting the, the world to link together. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, just this morning, uh, before I left the house, I have some some workers in my house uh, remodeling, and one of them was framing a, a new closet for me. And he was asking me about what I did for a living, and I was talking about being a network engineer, which I'm really not anymore because I work in technical marketing. But whatever, you know, I, I always say network engineer anyway. And we're talking about that stuff, and you know, he starts bringing up uh, internet stuff and websites. Hey, could you design my website? I'm like, no, that's not what network engineers do. <laughs> you fix my um, printer. Yeah, right. <laughs> Standard answer. Can you fix my wireless printer? Uh, but then he, uh, it, I, I got it in my head to say, hey, you know, let me show you this picture because I knew we were going to be recording this podcast this morning. So I, right. I queue up a submarine cable map on my phone and I show it to him like, Here, here's what the submarine cables look like that carry like internet traffic around the world. And he's looking at it like, what? And he was so enamored with that picture on my phone, pinching and zooming and looking in and yeah. zooming in on all the connections between North America and Europe primarily, but then like kind of looking around. He even noticed like those single little blue and orange lines that would go across the Indian Ocean to one island, which I assume is some you know, island nation, right? Really, really cool. And uh, and then to him, you know, his response was, I thought it was all satellites. Yeah. And that's probably a common misconception for a layperson. But the reality is that satellites have virtually nothing to do with moving global internet traffic around the world, that it's uh, almost entirely physical media, fiber optic undersea cables that do that for us, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the vast majority of all intercontinental communications is going over submarine cables. It's not going over satellites. Satellites do a great job of providing an alternate 
end user access technology to you know, reach remote places, underserved areas, airplane ships, things like this, but they are in no way capable of carrying the volume of data that's being carried by a sub-submarine cable. Um, I think, you know, one fiber pair on one cable is this, is the same capacity as like the entire Starlink system. Oh, is that right? So you can just think about how that's a very high capacity satellite system. Yeah. And it's going to do, it's a, it's, it's very useful for linking people remotely, um, to the internet, but it could not carry the data that's being sent between continents around the world at all. And it wasn't even designed to do that, right? It was the, that's in the point of Starlink anyways. Um, cables have a very important role. That's going to be that way for the, for the, for the future, though, as far as we, we can tell. Um, you know, we're seeing more money going into new cable construction. Over the next three years, like over $10 billion is going into new cables really all over the world. You're seeing cables in the Atlantic, Pacific, South America. You know, Africa's getting two massive new cables installed in, uh, during this year and, and next year. So really a boom time right now for uh, submarine cables around the world. Alan, what's the uh, what's the cause for that? Is the uh, is this is it just capacity, uh, or is there you know more resilience or uh, uh, lower latencies between particular locations, or is it what's the driving factor? The driving factor for new cables, you know, there's many factors, of course, that that, that drive new cables. I mean, the, the the most obvious is demand growth. You know, whenever you have demand for bandwidth internationally growing, you know, thirty forty percent between most areas. That's like almost doubling every two two years, right? So um, there's a need over time to just build new cables to meet that demand. Um, there was many cables built, you know, in the telecom boom, like the late '90s or early early 2000s. These cables, you know, many of them are still in service. They're doing a great job of providing a high level of bandwidth, but they can't scale much anymore. So they're going to be turned off, actually, probably in the next four or five years. Some of them have already been turned off. We're going to see. You know, a couple have turned off this year. I mean, the, the Japan-U.S. cable is going to be turned off in uh, J- July of this year, for example. So when you have older cables going out of service, you got new ones coming in, you got to have more than one or two, right? You have to have diversity because no one knows cables exist partially because when they break, no one notices, right? Because there's just so many that are in place. There's outages that happen all the time globally, but you don't you don't hear about it. So building not just one or two, but three, four, five high capacity cables um, to help meet the demand going forward is 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 a, is a very important part of what's happening right now. Um, lower latency, as you mentioned, it's a desirable trait always for cables to follow a more direct path to the extent it's, it's possible to, to do to do that. But latency alone does not drive new 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 cable construction really. Um, the other th- I guess big angle to to bring out, which is I think people are probably pretty aware of this. The main the main companies building or funding a lot of the, the new cables now are the hyperscalers, content providers, cloud providers, whatever you want to call them. It's Google and Meta, Amazon and Microsoft. Those four companies are are heavily involved in cables all over the world and have been for some time, um, and and are really trying to. You know, link together their data centers and their large user bases globally with their own fiber. Um, they have far more demand than telecom carriers do, um, internet backbone providers do for capacity. So um, now they don't have their own cables that other companies have their own cables. Cables are a shared resource, right? Everybody's using the same cable. It is though there's like, there's like just a cable for 
the internet backbones, just a cable for the content providers. It's, everybody's using the same cables. Um, so uh, everybody benefits from the investments by content providers in the submarine cables um, that, we're, that we're seeing deployed around the world. So it sounds like these aren't owned by a single private company. It sounds more like a cooperative of companies of investment, uh, and then maybe also nations as well, uh, investing for the public good. Yeah, most often these, these, these cables are built by multiple parties. They aren't just built by one company in most cases. You know, uh, you know Google has built some cables of which they are, the, they are the, the, the sole owner of, but then other companies do get access to capacity on those cables, right? So, so Orange can provide you capacity on the do not cable between France and the United States. Um, so there is there is the ability for all types of users to get access to these cables, even though Google was the sole builder of of the cable. There's also like a lot of I've I've just again from doing analysis on this over the years uh, and how how much more difficult it is to tease out individual submarine cable incidents, and that's a good thing. Um, but like uh, there was a time where you know like like a, I think in East uh, Middle East East Africa. Tata, you could map. You know, they we knew who their who they were investors, what cables they were investors or owners of, and they would be using those. And if that cable went down, then they were the service was off. And that's not a scenario that really happens anymore because they're going to buy capacity on the competing. They may own one cable, but they're going to buy uh, some backup capacity Absolute. on the competing cable. Absolutely, and, yeah. And so then when the, it goes down, um, it's hard to find the impact, uh, which again is a good. Thing, uh, but um, it wasn't always that way. There was uh, it used to be a little bit more one to one, as far as like the uh, a telecom owning a cable, they would be just using that one cable. That's the end of the uh, that's right arrangement. That's right, absolutely. So, Alan, can you tell us a little bit more about the underlying technology here? I mean, I'm familiar with fiber optics in a broad sense, wavelengths and the different types of fiber and that sort of thing. But ultimately, I know that for very long distances, you have uh, the potential for latency problems and for issues with power, just getting that signal down a very, very long run. And in this case, we're talking about thousands of, of kilometers and miles, of course. And also, from a traditional network engineer's perspective, the concern is usually with latency uh, because that directly affects an application's performance. But what you mentioned wasn't latency. What you mentioned was volume. Uh, so it sounds like the concern here for you and for the undersea cable industry is moving massive amounts of data and not necessarily with latency. Yeah, so the, 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 the cables that are going long distances have repeaters in them that boost the signal you know, in them. And so because of that, they, they, are, they are powered. And there are limits to how many fiber pairs you can put in a single cable across the ocean. You can't put 192 fiber pairs, at least not, not yet, in a long-haul cable uh, across the ocean. So currently, what, what, what we're seeing is a shift in the industry from trying to uh, boost the capacity uh, carried by a single, a single optical fiber pair to seeing more fiber pairs in the cable. So in the past, you'd have you know, four to six fiber pairs in a cable, but now we're, we're seeing... 12, 16, and even 24 coming. So the, the, uh, the newest or the, the, the latest, greatest cable in the Atlantic coming next year being built uh, by uh, Meta is going to have 24 fiber pairs. And, it's, and they say it's going to be capable of carrying uh, uh, 500 terabits per second of capacity. So half a petabit 
on one cable is the, you know, the, the future uh, design capacity of the system. So uh, we're going to see that going forward, um, you know, more, more, more fiber pairs to, to boost the capacity. There's other things that are, that are being considered as ways to boost the capacity as well, whether it's uh, you know, multi-core fiber or C plus L, things like this that are being looked at as well. Um, but there's constant efforts to try to boost the capacity of a cable because, uh, you know, once the cable is, is in water, in the, in the water, you can change the things on the ends, the shore ends, the, the, the SLTE, the, the, the terminal equipment, you can try to improve things there, but you can't really change the fibers. You can't change the repeaters, at least not very easily. So, so you want to ensure you're doing the, the, the best job you can on day one to get the highest capacity system in the water because cables are designed to last for a minimum of 25 years. So um, oh, right? it's, a, it's, it's, a very, it's a long, long-term investment. So then, so then explain why a cable would be considered old and then retired. You mentioned that earlier. Is it, is it uh, just a capacity problem or physically the cable is deteriorating because some you know, uh, megalodon chewed on it and un under the water? Are you implying that sharks eat cables, Phil? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm hoping they do. Be and, and that we have video. That is a myth. Is it really a myth? That's a myth. Really? Oh. Myth. Myth. Absolutely it is. Sharks don't bite cables. Okay. I mean, it, sharks it, don't like years cables, ago, yeah. there was a few cases of, of this happening. But, but in the last you know, 25 years, there's no cases of uh, any uh, animals biting cables. The, the cause of faults really is just it's, it's fishing, it's anchors. And there's things like you know, earthquakes and vol volcanoes like the Tonga thing last year. So why are cables uh, tur turned off? Well, they, they, they do have this, this you know, design life of, of, of 25 years, but it's in... It's an economic issue as well, not not just uh, the, the cable lifespan. Um, if cables can't, if their capacity can't scale enough to to offer a you know comparable you know unit cost per terabit of capacity compared to the, the newer cables, it become it becomes very expensive to operate because with the cable you are paying a lot of money for the upfront cost to install it, but you're also paying some some O and M some some opex every every year just to maintain the cable. You have a fleet of ships on standby to go out and fix the cable if it breaks. You have to have that, right? And so if your cable is carrying five terabits and the other guy's cables are carrying, you know, a couple hundred terabits, your five terabits are very expensive, right? So that can, that can make it a candidate for being turned off purely because it's a very expensive cable to run. Technical issues, you know, can, can exist. Um, if there's a lot of faults in the cable, over the life of the cable, that, that can impair the ability to upgrade uh, the, the cable. If the cable also is in a, it's just, you know, let's say it's very fault prone, maybe you'd, you're, you're inclined to just turn the cable off instead of having to constantly deal with having to pay to uh, repair the cable as well. But there's, there's, there's many factors that, that come into this of, of when you turn off a cable. Uh, you have to get all the, all the owners to agree to it as well. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Sometimes there are, or often there are, multiple private and even public investors and, and owners with uh, an ownership stake in these undersea cables. So my question is, who owns the boats? Who owns the repair and maintenance obligation? And then who makes that decision about decommissioning a cable? Depends on each cable being different, right? But it's, I think it's fair to say that different parties could have different values that they are getting from the cable. So some party may think, well, this is like one of my three cables that come to my country. For me, it's really important to have this cable. I don't want to turn it off. But somebody else in the, in, the, in, the, in the cable consortium maybe has, you know, 10 cables. And they're like, this, this is an old one. Let's turn it off. I'm tired of paying for it. 
there could be there could be one one party in the consortium who makes a lot a lot, a lot of money on the the backhaul or the cross connects in the cable station, right? So they they don't want to turn that they don't want to turn off that um, money 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 spigot. They want to keep that that going for their own their own selfish reasons. So there's a lot of things that that, that go into turning cables off, but um, we are seeing it happen slowly, as I mentioned with you know a couple this year and there's several the last couple of years. So it's the the map of cables that we see on our on our cable map is is changing slowly with new ones being added you know all the time but also some lines do go away we we don't show cables that, that have been turned off on our map but uh alan I, you know like i uh you know this better than me this is more your industry but just from being around the, the space you know there's a um there's an interesting ecosystem of the people in the submarine cable industry where there are you know the fabrication companies that fabricate the cable um which may be different than the installer the the, the people who are going to put it in the in the ships in the in the water, and then there's these various different types of consultants that will help you with the international permitting. There's a bunch of legal uh, things. There's also a business case that you have to. Uh, maybe it's less uh, less an issue when uh, you've got these uh, hyperscalers uh, just footing the bill for everything. But I know that when I first started attending these things, uh, it seemed like half the conversations were just around. All the economics and making sure you can get this right because there's a as you mentioned there's a big upfront cost there's a fair amount of risk the thing could break and now you have to pay to fix it and you're not making money when it's down um and the uh so it's it's a um uh, a bit of a uh, it can be a risky endeavor uh that you need to make sure you you understand the economics of it uh it is for sure anyway so have i left anybody out is that there's there's like a a variety of different types of people uh, involved in making a cable a reality. That's a very fair coverage of it. But I would one thing you said about the it d- does the business side not matter anymore because you have content guys footing the bill. I would I would disagree somewhat. I mean because you know the cables need need to be viable. I think and and they and they do and they do involve parties who 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 aren't these content providers. And so they they have to look at. What are their internal demand requirements to serve maybe their their broadband customer base, their enterprise customers? Um, are they going to try and wholesale capacity? At what rates can they sell that at? So we do a lot of work at Telegraphy trying to help companies who want to build new cables and to do their their commercial side business plans for them to help look at you know what are the, what are the revenue prospects for your cable? Um, sure, twenty five years is a, is, a, is a long life for a cable, but you're hoping that in the next you know. Five six years that it's 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 the right choice and is able to to pay to pay for itself, and um, there's there's a lot of risk, right? Uh, demand growth fluctuates, price erosion also you know goes up and down. Uh, there's there's new com- com- competing cables coming online that can take you know market share from from your, your cable. Lots of variables here that need to be considered when looking at uh, building a new cable. Alan, you mentioned that there has been a steady growth in, de- in the demand for undersea cable capacity over the years. Uh, yeah, with some ebbs and flows, but ultimately resulting in more cable being laid, including this new one that you mentioned that's uh, crossing the Atlantic. That's a very high capacity. But I have to imagine that this could pose an issue when new cable is being laid in between and among countries that are not necessarily friendly with each other. Ah, yes. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I know Doug has written a lot in, uh, in blog about some 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 of the some of these issues with uh, uh, Cuba and the U.S. recently. Um, 
just for some background for the audience, I guess. Um, so a if, few if, if, if years back, there was plans to build a new cable between the mainland of the U.S. and Hong Kong, Philippines, and Taiwan. Uh, the U.S. government, you know, blocked that cable from from being from being uh, licensed, claiming that you know one there were some concerns about the one of the parties, uh, the ownership being having some Chinese government ties. That was one angle. The other angle was that the fact that it just, it just went to Hong Kong, that it went to Chinese territory, that was a problem somehow. And and so a few other cables that were had also been planned to go between Hong Kong and the U.S. Um, were then canceled subsequently, and and they're trying to be rerouted or redesigned to avoid this path. And so, uh, you know, when that happened to me. It was kind of interesting. Um, you know, I, I can't speak to the you know the national security threats and this type of, type of thing, but I I can say that there there are currently cables that exist that are in service between China and the United States right now. Um, so that already exists. Those are in place. Those are still active. Also, data is going between China and the U.S. all the time on cables that do not link the countries directly. You know, data can go via Japan, right, <laughs> which is what the vast majority of it does, actually. So by blocking these cables, that doesn't really do anything to change the fact that data is going to, going to still flow between the two countries. Um, that was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, point, point there. And the issue with the and, and also recently the thing that Doug wrote about was that the government had blocked the plans to build a branch from a cable that goes to the U.S. a branch uh, to, to to Cuba, and and um, so what does that do? Well, Cuba already has uh, two cables; they're going to have one one more soon. It just means it doesn't mean that Cuba can't communicate with the United States. It just means that the data is going to go via a third country. So I'm not really sure what's being uh, accomplished by these plans to to block th- these these cables. It just leads to a rerouting of the demand among different places, and I don't see how it creates any uh, additional s- security for the United States by, by by doing this. But again, I'm not an expert in national security. <laughs> so on, I'll, maybe I'll jump in here. Please too, do. So I wrote, uh, yeah, I wrote a a piece uh, last month. Uh, just uh, in anticipation of the 10-year anniversary of the Alba-1 submarine cable to Cuba. So just to maybe to recap why this is an interesting thing, why it was interesting 10 years ago, was that Cuba had been left, there's a you know, U.S. embargo against Cuba, stand, it continues to this day, uh, and they had been left out of every submarine cable uh, project in the Caribbean. And if you were to pull up Allen's uh, submarinecablemap.com, uh, you can see you know, there's a big hole in all the, the wiring where Cuba, uh, and Cuba's a big, uh, a big island in the Caribbean. Um, and so they were stuck on geostationary satellite, which is... Uh, you know, high latency, low capacity, expensive in comparison to a submarine cable link. And uh, so it's, it's bad on every uh, front. Um, and so uh, in order to get connected, then the Venezuelan government, uh, so it's Hugo Chavez at the time, uh, said they put up the money because uh, nobody else would want to touch it. You don't want to cross paths with the embargo. Uh, and so they built a cable from uh, Cuba to uh, both Jamaica and to Venezuela, and that was the Alba one uh, cable. Now that was built and supposedly finished in 2011, but there was no evidence that it had been used or made any difference uh, for a couple of years. And that was around the time that I was trying to get smart on submarine cables uh, and internet measurement. And I just came into this uh, uh, 
blogs of people speculating like, well, maybe it's only being used in this way or this, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it never was built and everybody just stole the money or something. There's all <laughs> these like theories going around and, uh, and Cuba is a bit of a fascination. Uh, there's definitely an audience, uh, within the United States that's very fascinated with these, uh, Cuban related issues. And, um, uh, and so then I got into it and I was like, all right, well, you know, uh, we'll set something up in our, uh, my Renesis stuff to alert me when we see a new connection into Cuba and like, it was like two years later or 18 months later, I got an email that was an automated thing that I had set up uh, showing this new connection. And uh, sure enough, that ended up being the, uh, the activation of this cable. Um, but um, anyway, so then fast forward to recently. Uh, so this ca- that cable has been really the one. There's, there's a couple to the Guantanamo Bay, but for the, for the people of Cuba, there's just the one cable that they've been relying on. Uh, Arcos is another uh, you know, pan-Caribbean uh, cable that lands on a number of countries, including the United States. Uh, they had applied uh, to get permission to build a little spur over to uh, Cuba. And then in December, uh, the Department of Justice uh, national security team said that the risks were too high and they should be rejected. Now, in that, uh, I kind of got into this in the blog, Into the, their part of their rationale was uh, some things that I also I know a thing or two about. Uh, one is like this would enable them to do BGB hijacks against the United <laughs> States if there was a cable that connected both the, uh, Cuba and the United States. And I was like, well, the two things have nothing to do with each other. You exactly. can BGB hijack without having a direct submarine cable. Uh, so and it, even they were citing stuff that was they were indirectly citing um, stuff I had written in their rationale. And uh, I was like, all right, well, I feel like I know a thing or two about this. And that, you know, you can do whatever you want. If there's a political, you know, uh, there's always political calculations. And, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, those folks are going to make the, yeah. their decisions, and that's that's their thing. But let's not let's 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 not um, make this that this is a, a there's a technical rationale because I don't I don't buy that, and I do know something about it. But anyway, that was my that was my soapbox on uh, the, the Cuba. Um, scenario that I wrote up uh, last last month but um i know there's no there's not a lot of incentive uh you know cuba is an adversary of the united states uh is a authoritarian government there's a lot of bad stuff going on in that country so it is tricky to engage with uh in the same way that we're trying to figure out how to engage with iran uh and what you know um we we want to support the people we want to support internet connectivity and an open internet uh, but at the same time, you know, you've got an authoritarian regime that may benefit from that, and you have to weigh those costs, and then that's where, you know, politicians will make decisions. But um, uh, anyway, it's a it's a tricky tricky area. I wanted to go a bit more into the, the China issue because, you know, as I said, one of the issues with you know denying direct cables between China and the U.S. it doesn't stop the data from from flowing between the two countries. But one, you know, indirect side effect can be that it, it does decrease the role of Hong Kong, perhaps, or China as being a hub within Asia for other countries seeking to connect to China to get access to the rest of the world. So what we've been seeing, you know, since those cables have been blocked is everybody's clamoring for what's going to be the next big hub in Asia. Is it the Philippines? Is it going to be, you know, Indonesia, Thailand, whatever, because you have Japan up north and Singapore down south as the two key hubs in Asia right now. We're seeing several new cables that are being built from Singapore directly to, to the United States as well right now. So you have these these two big spans, the Northern Transpac, Japan to the U.S., and the South, you're going to have Singapore to the U.S. And so that leaves the question is, how is China going to connect? Well, they're going to have their own cables that go, that emanate out of Hong Kong to their countries within the, the, the region, 
Um, but to it, by denying these direct cables, it, it, it does make other countries want to use more Singapore and Japan as their main points, their, their hubs to connect the rest of the world. We're also seeing within Asia, at, at least there's, there's at least one be more planned, cables that are intra-Asian cables that traditionally would go from Japan to Singapore you know, and land in Hong Kong, other spots, through, through the uh, South China Sea. There's a new cable plan called Apricot, going to be planned to inter-service next year that goes east of the Philippines. So it is a Japan to Singapore, east of the Philippines, hitting a few, a few more spots, Guam among them, which, which seeks to avoid going through the South China Sea and any waters that would be part of uh, you know, the nine-dash line. There's been so many delays with cables that, yeah, there's so many delays with cables that are going in that part of the world. So there's, there's this new cable, the Southeast Asia-Japan Cable 2, was, it was announced in 2018 to be built by NEC by a consortium of, 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 of parties, including Chinese carriers, um, between Japan uh, and Singapore going to Hong Kong as well. It still hasn't entered service yet. It's been five years. It's mainly laid except for the part that goes through Chinese waters, waiting permits. To, to, and we hear that it could be ready for service next year. But we heard that two years ago that it would be the next year it would be in service. And it's the next year it's going to be in service. So there's been so many delays. It's, it's, you know, I think people have tried to rethink their network st- strategy of, uh, of where they want to risk putting cables um, to do things that are going to have a higher likelihood of happening uh, as soon as possible, right? You, you can't afford some of these, these risks because the, the delays to new cable construction, it, it can really set you back in terms of, I mean, it's expensive having the delays for one, for one, but also if your strategy is to have this new capacity online to meet your demand and it's not there when you need it, it can be really bad for your, 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 your network planning. Has there been anything that has changed in the undersea cable technology or landscape with regard to the proliferation of cloud technology, public cloud technology, and how data is moving around the world differently than it used to, especially in large quantities? I think I would go back to what I said earlier about the, 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 the shift in the ownership of these cables and having the, the companies that are the made cloud companies um, owning the cables and having a direct direct stake in them, not just uh, as, you know, owning capacity in them, they, they want to increasingly have a role in where the cables go and, and, and how they are designed. And, and they're also helping to push the envelope in terms of the, the capacity of the cables, because for them, cables are a cost, right? They don't earn enough cables. It's a cost for them. So their entire goal is to let's lower the cost per terabit as much as possible, you know? So that's been a big, a big change in um, you know, having just the, the cloud growth um, you know, does help to fuel this, these kind of hidden parts of the network, the subsea cables that are you know, how the cloud regions link, link together. It's via the cables. Alan, one uh, interesting um, uh, dynamic. It's interesting to hear all the discussion about the demand, and that's really cool. I remember at one point, um, and I, this, this is dating myself, maybe 2014 or something, there was, a, you guys were tracking, I don't know, maybe a bit of a lull uh, in the, the, you know, up and to the right graph of summary cable demand. And part of the rationale was at, there was a time when 
domestic connectivity in a lot of countries was not what it is today. And so you'd have this crazy hairpinning, like the Middle East is a big example. Asia was also another one uh, where two providers, two, two service providers in one country would exchange their traffic in London or something really far away. And so they were kind of artificially pushing up the demand on uh, submarine cables. And as that got resolved, as there was more domestic connectivity and these guys were changing, exchanging traffic in the country, uh, uh, there was then then it was like a something that would just maybe take the foot off the pedal maybe just slightly uh, and then there's also like uh, some of the OTT uh, services being able to you know the, all the innovation around caching uh, where stuff isn't just going off uh, it isn't always an international connection to service let's say Netflix or something um, you've got local caches serving things up it becomes a far more efficient system. Um, uh, of how do you deliver traffic, uh, that too seemed like... There was a couple of factors there, but it sounds like that was just a, a little hesitation, and then it just went right back into uh, unbounded growth. I think I kind of what, what, you're, what you're getting at also, I mean, what you said is, is absolutely true. I think one thing that we did see in our data was, so we, we gather data each year from the, the major internet backbone operators about their international network, the capacity they have between various cities. And I think we, we first saw some really slow growth in the Atlantic in, I forget the year, maybe it was 2012, 13, or, or, or 14, around there. And it was kind of, kind of strange because it had been you know, a pretty solid clip for many years. And what was happening was, at that point in time, it was the content providers who started to stop using uh, or, or having the, the internet backbone providers carry some of their traffic, and they started to deploy their own private networks across the Atlantic so this was first done by them, you know, acquiring wavelengths capacity ac across, you know, different cables. Then it came to them acquiring entire fiber pairs on older cables. And then it came with to them, you know, investing in cables, in, in, in new cables. And so we started to see this, this big shift happening. And you've seen it in other markets around the world where we've seen this, this kind of lull sometimes in the backbone operators, you know, their, 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 their traffic or their, or their capacity they deployed it hasn't grown for a few years. We're like, what's going on? They're like, well, the content guys moved in. They, they put all their stuff locally, and now they have their own transport going back to their data center in Europe. So we don't need to have as much ourselves. And that, that still happens because, you know, the, 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 the um, cloud providers, they, you know, they haven't deployed their, their, their backbone everywhere in the world yet. But whenever they, 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 they do, there is this kind of a transition period where you, you see some, some shifting from the, the demand from the, the you know the major carrier networks onto the uh, the content power networks for the, the long haul portion. But your point is that that traffic is always there. Uh, it just yes, uh, your collection yes. methodology may not capture it. Well, we do track the content growth as well. So we we are so in our our overall demand data is definitely showing all categories of of demand. But your 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 point was I think a good one about there was some things that were international that didn't need to be. Right, that where things were hair, hair pinning in London, yeah. uh, and and I think that's that's being resolved, right? As you see more local internet exchanges globally, and people agree to create a peer. But there are some parts of the world where carriers don't want to peer with each other because they don't get along, and so the there is data exchange, you know, maybe in a third in a third country. Uh, 
Yeah, it's a, there's a there's actually a rational argument of why <laughs> there's a rational argument why that takes place. Uh, you know, like you said, like even a, a powerful incumbent doesn't want to uh, appear domestically with its uh, uh, private competitors, and if they have to send their traffic out of the country, uh, too bad for them because uh, that's a that that hurts them more than it hurts the incumbent, and then you end up with this weird. Uh, you know, when we look at trace routes in the Middle East, we'll see like two, you know, Saudi providers exchanging traffic in London or New York City. Uh, yeah, Middle East is a good example. Uh, but I mean, Mexico is too. You know, that's our neighbor, and that's another scenario where you have a, a very dominant incumbent um, that uh, exchanges a lot of their traffic in um, Texas and Los Angeles. Um, uh, a lot of it ends up having to come back into the U.S. to go back into Mexico. So is there any built-in logic, any intelligence in the undersea cable infrastructure? I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of how one cable may touch many different regions or many different countries, and you might want to be strategic in where data can go, for example. There's not a lot of logic in the submarine cable uh, um, itself. I, I know I've, I remember at one point, seeing people propose like oh you know that what if the submarine cable itself was routing travel i was like i don't sure that that's gonna work so um another uh like miscon or miss i don't know misconception when uh is uh is that like the, when you see a submarine cable like you pick one off of submarinecablemap.com uh and you see it land in these 11 countries uh that or whatever it is <laughs> um the like one interpretation is it's like a bus, yes, yes. like everybody's got access to everything, uh, that kind of thing. Um, uh, and then there's, there's like, I, I feel like if you, there's a, you know, I don't know, you, you can only show so much on that, you know, uh, graphic, but, uh, in reality, like you've got pairs that are going between different cable landing stations that aren't necessarily traversing the entire cable. So when there was a break or something breaks, you, it's not obvious sometimes where the impacts are going to show up, um, but uh, I mean, I've only just learned this just from trying to understand things, like from a data standpoint. But. Yeah. So I, I think what you're saying there's there's actually there's actually yeah, there, there's there's two points here to make. One is is you're you're right. The the fiber pair mapping of a cable can really vary. There can be express fibers that you know don't hit every spot in the cable that you see. This happens a lot with cables like on the coast of Africa. Or you know cables between Europe and Asia, so um, you know some fibers just drop in certain places, and the capacity of those branches might have a totally different capacity than the, than the, the major trunk of the cable. So it's it's very imbalanced in some ways. Um, but I think your point is a good one. I think we're getting at also is that just because a cable might hit, let's say every country, it's how the the operators choose to deploy their their backbones, and maybe their IP routers are just, let's say, in Dakar and London. They're not in every spot along the way, right? So they can't directly access Nigeria from Dakar. They have to go to London first to then send data to, you know, to Lagos. So that's the other issue. Or yeah, I guess, I guess that's the, maybe that's the be a better example of like if take like the one of the one of the Simui cables. You're going to have like a landing yeah. in. Uh, um, Mumbai and Karachi, which are like adjacent, you know, uh, on a, on a submarine cable map. Uh, but you can't just go onto the cable and then, uh, and then go to the next, just like you would on a subway, just, uh, get off at the next stop. Uh, it, 
you, you may have to go all the way to the end and come all the way back uh, to go to the next uh, stop. Yeah, the first question, like, is it possible to go to go direct? And if it is, you have to then have a carrier who will deploy that link and make it or make it actually enter service. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's physically possible, uh, layer one, and then there's a layer three exactly. or something, yeah. uh, another yeah, layer yeah. that also has to make it happen. So for anybody who's followed internet connectivity in the country of Vietnam over the past decade, uh, you you know that they have a lot of submarine cable issues. Uh, in fact, like uh, when every time I see a headline that you know Vietnam's internet is uh, crippled due to some submarine cable uh, outage, I have to check the date to make sure this is the new one or this is the last one or the one before that. Um, it's multiple times a year. What is the uh, what's the why is it uh, that was there just some poor mapping, uh, planning of cables? What's the explanation for the the woes of inter, uh, Vietnam's international connectivity? I think I think the heavy reason for that is that the cables that go into Vietnam are in, are in waters that are very shallow and are heavily fished, and there are lots of you know, anchor issues as as, as well. Um, you know, Vietnam does get the majority of its connectivity inter from international submarine cables. They do have terrestrial fiber as well, which does meet some of the requirements. But most recently, you're writing four of the five cables were out for at, for some length of time. Um, and, you know, they do have new cables planned. And one of those cables I mentioned earlier is the SJC cable. That's been delayed for five years now or whatever. So they should have some new connectivity in the next couple of years with some new higher capacity cable, which will certainly help to augment what they currently have. Hopefully they're going to be more reliable though. <laughs> okay. Like, I don't know if it's, if it's just, if it's shallow waters, uh, anchors and fishing, um, then wouldn't, would the, could the new cable be more resilient to that? I mean, I would, I would, I would have to, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of the exact routing of the cable, the burial depth of the cable, the armoring type on the cable. But, you know, all these, all these, all these measures are routinely used to help, you know, guard cables. You know, you have more armoring on the cables that are in the shallower waters. You bury it um, where, where you can, two to even three meters deep so that, um, you know, anchors can't really touch them, hopefully. I would imagine this is probably foremost on the minds of the people installing Whatever's the next cable that they need to get. Uh, these are um, dangerous waters for submarine cables. Yeah, for sure. And I think one one of the best things to 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 help to improve the quality of the internet is just to have more more cables. Safety in numbers. That is a strategy that that seems to work in many parts of the world. Alan, I think I'm going to stop us here. We are at time, but I do want to say thank you very much for joining and talking about your experience and knowledge and undersea cables with us today. Very, very interesting. As someone who has been a traditional network engineer for many years, my perspective is, is just much more local. So it's, it's very interesting to hear from you what goes on when I configure routing at the local level and then send traffic across the entire world to access information somewhere else. Really, really interesting to hear. Uh, now, for our audience, I will put a link to the Telegeography website and to the submarine cable map. It's thoroughly interesting to look at, pinch and zoom, and kind of check out what's going on there. Now, Alan, if folks have any questions for you or would like to learn more or have a comment, how can they reach out to you? For me personally, the best way would be via LinkedIn. Um, but also, I would suggest um, going to our, our blog, which is blog.telegeography.com. 
Uh, we, we have a wide variety of things we post there with the latest uh, presentations or thoughts we have on different things happening uh, in the industry. Excellent. Thanks. And Doug, how about you? Let's see. I'm on uh, Twitter, at Doug Midori. Uh, I'm also on Mastodon now, at Doug Midori again. And then LinkedIn is another good way to uh, reach out to me. Great. Thanks, Doug. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, network underscore Phil, still very active there. And you can search my name, Philip Gervasi, on LinkedIn. You can also follow Telemetry Now on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Now, if you have an idea for a show or you'd like to be a guest, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at telemetrynow at kentic.com. So until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.